believe that the Lord is worthy of all of our praise. Worthy is the Lamb who took away all of our sins. If you were to reduce life down to its core meaning, the bare minimum of what is necessary, what life is all about, that would be it. Giving glory to the Lord. Praise God. Thanks, Rob, for that ministry. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Ephesians 1. Or maybe that you were here last weekend, you took seriously my invitation for you to begin the process of hiding the Word of God in your heart by memorizing the verses that we said we'd be preaching on this morning. Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. Uh, I, I'm just really being impressed by the Lord about the significance of His Word. Uh, this is the food, and there ain't no more. This is the lifeline. This is the blood, the Word of God. And I've just been, in my spirit, getting really excited about this stuff, this material. And I really believe that the key to transformation and growth and spiritual development is found in saturating our minds and our hearts and our lips with God's Word. Self-help books and stuff like that are great. You know, fine. But this is, this is the material here. If it's true, you probably already got it out of here. So, I'd encourage you. This isn't a new rule. We're not going to have a thermometer chart. No awards, no WANA programs or anything of the sort. But I'm encouraging you to, as we go through this book, this incredible book, to be taking the passages that we're going to be preaching on and committing them to memory. And we're going to be preaching out of the NIV version, so I'd encourage you to use the NIV version, but the King James is okay as well. It's just that when, if, and when we recite this in church, and I would like to do that once in a while, if you have the King James version memorized, uh, then say it softly. Anyways, <laughs> some, of you, some of you no doubt are studying the original Greek. I don't doubt that at all. Okay, Ephesians 1, 1 through 1, 3. Um, tell you what, let's do this out loud. If you have your Bibles, you can read it. I don't know, is it printed in the program? It might be. But if you've committed it, no, it's not. That's because we assume everyone would have, will have committed, to, committed it to memory. Let's say it together. It sounds kind of liturgical. We need a little more liturgy around this place. So let's, let's do some liturgical stuff here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the kicker. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Let's say that one more time, 1-3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Hide that in your heart. Put that in your mind. When you're going down the road, be reciting it. It's a lot better than a radio station. And it just does its subtle work of transformation while it's there. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, your communication to us, and you have filled it with a depth and a profundity that is light years beyond what mere human thinking would be capable of. Lord, I even feel the, the uh, obstacle here is that 
Your word is so profound that we might resist it with our natural understanding because it just doesn't jive with what we would think about things. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you'd have overcome every obstacle in our life, every obstacle in our mind to get this word across. My heart, Lord, is erupting in a way that my words could never catch up to about the significance of this word for us. But God, I, I need, we need your spirit to be present here because, Lord, we're very aware, I'm acutely aware, Lord, that only you can do the internal work in our life. That's your business, Lord. It's your business, Lord God, to soften hearts and to stretch minds and understandings and to convict and to encourage and to bring enlightenment, Lord. So we surrender that to you, Lord God. I surrender the message to you, Lord God, that you would do that. And we to collectively, Lord God, Lord God, surrender our thinking to you, Lord, that you would do the work in our thoughts and the work in our emotions and the work in our spirits that need to be done. And let this word be a bomb in our life that would explode bringing fruit, the fruit of eternal life, the fruit of the Spirit in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're not always going to be going this slow, so, so uh, I, I'm not always going to spend three weeks on one verse, uh, or on three verses. But at the beginning here, this stuff is just uh, so foundational to everything that's going to come later on in the book of Ephesians that I, I'd like to spend some time just sort of savoring it. And... Uh, uh, some of these themes will come up a little bit later on, and we won't have to deal with them so long because we've already have, have dealt with them. Uh, but this is just good stuff. A lot of times, writers and speakers kind of warm up, warm up to you, and and kind of ease you into this stuff. Paul Paul starts this letter going full speed. It'd be like me starting a sermon going, and then the Lord said to you, Hallelujah! That he, you know, it'd be like usually you kind of get into that, but Paul just starts this thing. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's like powerful, so I want to spend some time savoring it, chewing on it, and letting it sit. Last week we talked about who this letter is addressed to. It was addressed to the saints at Ephesus. And by inspiration, it's addressed to the saints at Woodland Hills, to the saints anywhere. The word saint, we saw, was not a uh, kind of a statue that is sitting around in a, in a church with a person holding two fingers up with a halo and long robes. Saint, to be a saint, is to be an agioi, a holy one. A holy one. Agios is the word for holy. Agioi is holy ones. We are the holy ones. We saw last week that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is called a saint. Not because you always think saintly and act saintly and talk saintly and behave saintly and have saintly kids and saintly marriages. What we saw last week is that in spite of the fact that often we don't have saintly thoughts and saintly emotions and saintly marriages and saintly lives, etc., in spite of that, we're called saints because while it's true that we sin, what's even more true is what we are because of what God has done to us in spite of our sin. Amen? And so Paul refers to us as we are blessed by God in heavenly places, as we are recipients of God's gift of righteousness that he gives us for free because we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I didn't get to in this service last week, I'm not going to do it this week either because I want to get it and move on. But read 1 John 3. That's what I was going to talk about. Uh, 20 seconds, okay. John says, it's a great passage. It really confirms this thing. John says that now are we the children of God. We're called the children of God. 
By God, we're called the children of God. Children always look like their parents. We, we radiate God's stuff. We're called the children of God, and that, 1 John 3 says, 3, 3 says, and that is what we are. Why? Because God calls us that, and he's the boss, and what he says goes. So we are called the children of God, therefore we are the children of God. But then John says, but we don't quite see that clearly now. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. The acorn doesn't know what an oak tree looks like when it's still an acorn, but it knows, if it had a brain, it would know that it would become an acorn, not a, not a donkey or something of the sort. So also it is predestined, Romans 8.29 says, it is predestined that we shall be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are children of God and we will someday radiate that, look like that, proclaim it perfectly in our, in our experience, something we don't do now. But it's not even clear what that would look like, 1 John says, but we do know this, 1 John 3.5 says, that when he shall appear, when Christ shall appear, we shall see him as he is. We don't see him quite as he is now. It's kind of foggy, through a glass darkly kind of stuff. But then we shall see him as he is. Why? Because we shall be like him. With the declaration that you are a holy one comes the promise that someday you're going to radiate that holiness. And then 1 John 3, 5 says this. Those who have this hope, this assurance, this knowledge, this future orientation purify themselves even as they are pure. And what you learn there, and there's a whole sermon that I'm right now slipping aside because I promised you I'd only go 20 seconds on this and I've already gone 23. Uh, uh, there's a whole sermon here about the motive. You purify yourself. John says we purify ourselves knowing who we already are. We are pure because of what God says. And that is what the, what the motivation is to purifying ourselves. Knowing that you're a saint, you strive towards saintliness. Knowing that you're a holy one, you strive for holiness. Knowing that you're a child of God, you strive to rip off of yourself all vestiges of being a child of the enemy. But it's not some carrot at the end of a stick that you're striving for, trying to get something you don't already have. Rather, it's more like this. Knowing that you're a champion and there's no way you can lose, you're motivated to act and think and train like a champion in order to win the race. Because it's predestined, you're going to win it. Praise the Lord. But that's for a different, that's a different sermon. Let's get into this sermon. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about a generic God, he's talking about a particular God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an important point because he's going to say some things about God that you would never think a generic God would do. A lot of people said, Oh, I believe in God, but God's kind of a, a generic term. The question is, what God do you believe in? What is your picture of God? Paul specifies it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God revealed in that person. That's the God I'm talking about. And you've got to know that. Otherwise, the stuff he's going to say after this is outrageous. It's outrageous. He's talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. I want, I want to talk about this, the rest of this morning, about this concept of heavenly realms. The word is apuranos in Greek. Ep means on or into or inside of. Uranos is the Greek word for heaven. We get the word, the, the planet. Is it the seventh or eighth planet in our solar system? It's called Uranus. They changed the pronunciation of it about ten years ago. It's called Uranus. That's the seventh or the eighth. Do we have any astronomy people in here? 
Seventh or eighth? Uranus, who cares? No one cares, but I'm thinking about it right now, so I care. Okay, well, that, that planet gets its name from the Greek word Uranus because when Newton discovered it, he thought that was the outer perimeter of the universe, so he said that is heaven. So Epudanos means in heavenly, in heaven or in heavenly places or in a heavenly realm or in a heavenly sphere. In the heavenlies, some translations have. Now that can be mis misunderstood in one of two ways. On the one hand, we could think, we could interpret it kind of tritely. Like we're, 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 we're blessed with heavenly blessings. And sometimes we use the word heavenly in kind of a, I don't know, a real kind of trite way. Like, you know, that dress is just heavenly. I love that dress. It is just divine. Um, oh, this heavenly ice cream. Isn't there an ice cream that's called heavenly ice cream? Or heavenly hash? It's, uh, uh, I think it's an ice cream. Um, <clears throat> anyways, that's not how Paul's using the term. It's not like an adjective. Oh, it's just heavenly. I do adore these blessings of God. No, 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 no. It's much more. Or Christians might understand the term to refer to something that's in heaven, like way up there. Someday when we die, by and by in the sky, we're going to get a pie. And that's what he's talking about. The heavenly blessings, way up yonder, over the blue. I got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander, but walk on streets as pure as gold. I haven't heard that song for 20 years. <laughs> See what the anointing does to you? That's not what Paul means. Let me, let me talk about what Paul is not getting at or what Paul's contrasting this term with. And then I want to talk about two things that Paul is getting at in heavenly places. And it's worth hanging on to. It's worth hanging on to. Uh, the dividends it pays by wrestling with this stuff, any, like any time we wrestle with Scripture, is, is, uh, is worth it. Paul, for sure, is contrasting, whatever the heavenlies means, being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, he's clearly not thinking about being blessed with every physical blessing in the earthly realm. That much is clear. When Paul uses terms like the world, the natural man, the carnal mind, the natural mind, the flesh, he's referring to the physical world that we're around, the world that is obvious, the world that we can touch, taste, see, feel, and hear. And when he uses the term flesh, sarx is the Greek word, he's referring to our fallen condition which gets us to think that this physical world is the totality of the real world. And to try to meet our innermost needs by manipulating this physical world. By what you can get, by how you can look, the fame you can get, etc., etc., etc. That's the natural world, the world that we see. It's very clear that when Paul says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, he is contrasting that with saying that we are blessed with every earthly blessing, every physical blessing, every material blessing on the earthly realms. And here's why this point is important. It's an incidental point, but it's an important point. Because there is a teaching that is quite pervasive today. It's sometimes called positive confession. And this teaching teaches, sometimes on the basis of a verse like this one, that the believer, because you're a believer and because you're a child of God, you have been blessed by God with every physical blessing. You've been blessed by God with every material blessing. You've been blessed by God with every earthly blessing. And part of what that entails is this. That because you're a child of God, you have a right to, you deserve, and God has promised you every kind of riches in this world. You deserve to be wealthy. You deserve to be prosperous. You deserve to have a great house. You deserve to drive the best kind of car. You deserve to wear the nice kind of clothes. You deserve to wear Rolex watches. And if you just have enough faith and just say it enough, you'll get it. Confess it, and you'll get it. Sometimes it's called blab it and grab it theology. Blab it and you grab it. 
Sometimes they, they go farther and say that what God has promised the believer is that you'll never get sick. If you have enough faith, you'll never get sick. God is faithful. He'll never let you get sick. You'll never have a headache. You'll never have an infirmity. You'll never have a disease. You'll never have cancer. You'll never stub your toe. You'll live to, se you'll live to be 75 years old. They, they get that out of Psalms somewhere. I don't know. And what happens is if you buy into this theology, then when you fall on hard times financially, and even that would be considered a kind of a sinful expression on my part, well, we're not supposed to fall on hard times. Well, we do. <laughs> Some of us. When you fall into hard times, when things go bad, when your company goes belly up, or when you get robbed, or when your insurance policy runs out the day before you have a fire, or whatever, then you're inclined to either blame yourself or blame God, because God promised it and it didn't happen to you, and so what's the problem here? Or maybe it's you that lack faith. You, don't, you lack faith, and, and, and that's why God is, what, punishing you, or that's why this thing's coming upon you? And you get sick, you've got the cancer, and someone tells you, well, listen, uh, God wants to heal you, so it must be your fault for not getting healed. I've seen this done just recently to a person in our, in our congregation. If you just had enough faith, God promised you every physical blessing, every material blessing, every earthly blessing, riches, wealth, prosperity, and health, it's all supposed to be yours. And even when it works, what you end up with is a bunch of believers who can be quite spoiled because they want more and more toys, and heaven becomes sort of a slot machine that you just pull it enough times and you get your toys. And see, what happens is when that happens, first of all, it usually backfires in one way or another because we don't usually get all the toys we want. When that happens, we get addicted to the toys of the physical realm, and we never move on to the good stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with toys, and there's nothing wrong with nice houses, and there's nothing wrong with nice cars and nice clothes, and there's certainly nothing wrong with, with physical health and well-being, and it's certainly right and good, and it's even biblical to pray for material blessings. That's not a carnal thing. Pray for material blessings, and certainly pray for healing. We believe that God can heal. By His stripes we are healed. The Bible commands us to pray for the sick, and we believe the Lord can heal the sick. But the point I want to make here this morning is this. We don't have it on God's authority. God doesn't put his integrity on the line that he's going to give us every physical blessing and every material blessing and every kind of health. Rather, we are told that sometimes it may be in the will of God or just the circumstances of this world that we don't have this, that we suffer. I've always wondered why these preachers do not take this gospel to Calcutta and preach it there. If it goes over good in America... They don't take it to Calcutta or Bangladesh or Ethiopia or Rwanda. Know what has been promised you and what hasn't been promised you. What has been promised us is great. It's incredible. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. But that may not include a Cadillac. So what does the heavenly realms mean? Rather than theorize about it, let's look at how the word is used in other places in the Bible. One fundamental principle of biblical interpretation is that you let every passage be interpreted by other passages. Look at how Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's dig into this. You want meat? We're going to get meat. This is meat. Let's go into it. Uh, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. This is the second place. There's two other times where the word eparanos is used in the Bible, and they're both found in the book of Ephesians. 120 and 2.6. I want to look at both of those. 120. Let's start with verse 18. Paul says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's in about four weeks. Can't wait. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power. That power is just like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the epuranos, in the heavenly realms. Now, where are these heavenly realms? Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Think about that for a second. Epuranos. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The term right hand of the Father, as it's used of the Father, is not a physical hand. If you look throughout Scripture, whenever they refer to the right hand of God or the right arm of God, it was a Semitic phrase, a Jewish way of referring to the strength of God. It was a Jewish way of referring to the power of God or to the honor of God or to the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, Moses says, as the, when he sees the Lord part the Red Sea, he says, surely we have seen the right hand of God. But it wasn't like there was this five-mile-long hand that came down and squished the, the water apart. He's referring to the power of God, the glory of God. Paul says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, which refers to the reality that Christ is sitting in the glory of God, the splendor of God, the majesty of God. And that is where Epuranos is, in the heavenly places. And where are these heavenly places, he tells us? They are far above all, all rule, and all power, and all dominion and all authority. Think about that. We're talking about this phrase, Epuranos. Where is it? It's where Christ is. It's where the right hand of God is. And, and wherever it is, and I'm not really talking location here, I'm talking state. It is far above all the kinds of rules, dominions, powers, and authorities. Think about, think about the kind of rules and authorities that we have in this world. We've got a lot of powerful people in this world. We've had a lot of powerful people in this world. People who have shaped histories. People who have conquered kingdoms. People who have reigned their entire life over entire nations. We've got Hillary and Bill Clinton, powerful, influential people. And we've got Yeltsin. And throughout recent history, we've had Stalin, and we've had Mussolini, and we've had Hitler, and we've had Gorbachev. Powerful, influential people. And if you look at history and what's shaped history, you think of the emperors of ancient Greece, incredibly powerful people, and the pharaohs of Egypt. A lot of authority, a lot of rule there. But Christ is above it all. He's far above it all. And not only on earthly rule and earthly authority, but Paul, but Paul says, far above all power and dominion. Most scholars believe that when he uses that phrase, power and dominion, he's referring to a spiritual realm. He's referring to spiritual beings. In fact, many scholars believe that when he, that when he, when he refers to rules and authorities, powers and dominions, the whole thing is referring to spiritual beings. Because the Bible tells us that this world, this universe is inhabited by not only earthly powers and earthly authorities, it's inhabited by spiritual powers and spiritual authorities. We know that there's an angelic realm, the, the, the heavenly host that praise God. And there's a leader of the heavenly host, and, and, and he's Michael the archangel. Ark means first. He's the highest angel. 
We also learn, unfortunately, about this demonic realm, an angelic realm that rebelled against God and fell and now exists in rebellion and warfare against God. We also learn that these beings still retain much of their power, much of their dominion, much of their authority. We learn something about what it is to be, have spiritual dominion in a demonic way from Daniel chapter 10. Where the Bible tells us that Michael the archangel was going to answer the prayer of, uh, of, of, of Daniel. And he tells Daniel, after it took three weeks to answer this prayer, he tells Daniel, I would have got here sooner, but I was detained fighting the prince of Persia. The prince of Persia is a spiritual being that somehow has dominion over all of Persia. A powerful being, a powerful spiritual entity. And Paul says of, of Satan and the demonic world that they are the principalities and powers of the air. His first century way of referring to these beings who have sort of a transcendent power. It's not an earthly kind of power. It's much greater than that. And, the, and the, the, the destruction that they're capable of is much greater than that. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that these demonic beings are able to do miracles. And he tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that these demonic beings are able to turn themselves into what appears to be an angel of light. Don't believe every near-death experience book you read because the enemy has the power to appear as an angel of light. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say this, that Satan has dominion over all the other beings that have dominion because Satan, 1 John 5.19 tells us, has control of the entire world. And Jesus calls him the prince of this world. Paul calls him the principality and power of this age. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, he calls him the god of this age. Powerful being. Influential beings, good ones, evil ones, angelic ones, demonic ones, power and strength and dominion. What we got to see from this verse when we're talking about Epuranos is that where Epuranos is, where Christ is, is not only above all of these other competing authorities and competing powers and competing rules, it's far above all of these other competing authorities, powers, and rules. Praise the Lord. Comparing the authority and the rule and the power of Christ to the power of even Satan and the whole demonic realm is like comparing the height of Mount Everest to a little anthill. Comparing the authority of Christ to the authority of, the, of these other angelic and demonic beings is like comparing the, the height of an IDS building to a little tiny dollhouse. There's no comparison. It's like comparing the height of a basketball player to the height of the stars of the sky. You know, to a five-foot... 11, 10, 11, guy like me. I go next to a Patrick Ewing or a Michael Jordan and, it's, and I hurt my neck. You know, it's like, oh, you know, and, and they, they're big, they're mighty, they're strong. And when we think in terms of the natural, our natural physical way of thinking, we think of rulers, presidential rulers and whatnot, and certainly spiritual rulers as being big, wild, strong, Schwarzenegger types. We can get in easily intimidated. But you take a basketball player that's seven feet and you compare him to the stars of the sky, some of them being billions and billions of light years out there, and you know what? There's not much of a comparison, is there? When you see it from the perspective of the star, a Patrick Ewing is kind of a... Uh, and so it is with the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ, the power of Christ, the dominion of Christ renders all other powers, all other authorities, all other rules inconsequential. Why? Because He alone is sitting in the heavenly places. He alone is sitting at the right hand of God. And the contrast between being in heavenly places and being on the earth and having some kind of small spiritual dominion is not just between a seven-foot guy and the stars. It's the contrast between the infinite and the finite. There's no comparison whatsoever. And that's why the Bible says in, in, in Ephesians 2.6, what we read earlier, 
is that Jesus Christ has received a title that no one else can receive. Praise God. We've got a lot of high and mighty titles that we use. President, CEO, boss, Fuhrer, Pharaoh, King, Queen, Senior Editor, Roger, he's a senior editor, high and mighty title, and we have spiritual titles that we use, principality and power, ooh, prince of this world, god of this age, big and mighty titles, and if you look just at the beings that have the title, you can get intimidated, you can get scared, you can get overwhelmed. But the Bible says that because Jesus Christ dwells in Epuranos, in heavenly places, at the right hand of God with the authority of God, the Bible says that he's been given a title that's above every title and a name that's above every name. Because Jesus Christ alone carries the title Lord. Lord God Almighty with a capital L. Jesus Christ alone bears the title of that Greek word which is the equivalent of the Old Testament, Yahweh. He alone, therefore, can be called the Son of God. And He alone can be called the Word of God. Praise the Lord. He alone can be called the image of God and the form of God. He alone can be called the expression of God and the wisdom of God. He alone can be called the power of God, the mighty potentate, the almighty one, the Savior and the Redeemer of all humankind. He alone has that because He alone dwells in Epuranos at the right hand of God. And that's why the Bible goes so far as to say this. There's more. In Revelations chapter 19, it says, that, it says this. There's a lot of kings in the world, and there's a lot of kings in the spiritual realm, and there's a lot of lords in the world, small l, and there's a lot of lords, small l, in the spiritual realm. But of Jesus Christ, it says that he is the word of God, and therefore he is the king of all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. Can you say amen? He's not just a king above kings. He's the king's king. And he's not just the Lord above all lords. He is the Lord of the lords. Praise the Lord. Far above all other ones. We don't see that clearly right now. Right now we live in a world of confusion with all sorts of warfare and stuff. So right now it's kind of foggy. Right now it looks as though there's competitors to Jesus Christ. It looks like there are things, there's this competing lords and there's competing authorities and competing powers. But the Bible says that someday, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, someday every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because that is who he truly is. He reigns on high in Epuranos. He reigns supreme. He sits in the heavenlies. Now, what does that do in terms of understanding this passage? Nothing, but I thought it was good material, so I thought I should share it. No, it does a lot. Hang on. Now it really sounds, doesn't it? Now it really sounds like when Paul says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, now it really sounds like this is some kind of transaction that occurred at the top of Mount Everest, but we're down here on the molehill, and so what good does it really do us? And oh yeah, now it really sounds like a pie in the sky when we die by and by kind of a deal. And that's nice, that's wonderful, hallelujah. But uh, it doesn't do much for us now. It's kind of like, okay, but right now we've got to just kind of suffer in misery and life kind of stinks. But you've got to ask this question. Why does Paul use the aorist tense? Some of you were already wondering that, weren't you? You were sitting there going, why does Paul use the aorist tense when he says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing? The aorist tense in Greek means that the verb signifies an action that is completed. Got that? Write that down. An er you don't have to write it down. But an aorist tense signifies an action that is completed. We are blessed. We have been blessed. 
Paul's referring to something that's done. It's completed. It's given to us. Now, if it's a future thing, why would he, why would he not say, we shall be blessed? We might be blessed. Hypothetically speaking, we're already blessed. No. He says we are blessed in the heavenly realms. Let's move forward and see if we can understand this a little bit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, 6. Actually, let's read verse 4. I love this stuff. But because, 2, 4, but because of his great love for us, his great love for us, that's in three months. God, who is rich in mercy, rich, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our transgressions, but He, even while we were dead, made us alive. Later. And God, oh, it is by grace you have been saved, in case you forgot. Verse 6. Now listen to this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him Epodanos, in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Slow down and get this. God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, Epodanos. Does it say He shall seat us with Christ in the heavenly realms? The answer is no. Does it say He might seat us there in the heavenly realms? Does it say He kind of seated us there in the heavenly realms? Does it say, hypothetically speaking, we are seated there sort of kind of maybe someday in the heavenly realms? No! It says we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Paul there uses the term sugathidzo. I just want to break this down. I'm not just trying to throw a bunch of Greek to get your brains confused. I can confuse you without using Greek. But sug means with. Kathidzo means to cause, to sit down. Yesterday I was driving in the car. We were going someplace with our family and my son was climbing all over the place like, he, like is his custom to do. So I turned around. He didn't want to sit next to the girls because he'd get germs. You see, so I, you know, he was just climbing everywhere but where he's supposed to be sitting. I said, Nathan, sit down with your sister. And if I would have been using Greek, I would have said, Sugathidzo. Sit down with Danae. Sugathidzo Danae. We have been caused to sit down. He uses the aorist tense again. It's, it, it's a done deal. It's a past fact. We have been made to sit with Christ in the heavenly realms. And when did this occur? When did this transaction take place? When were we seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? The verse says that when we were made alive from our transgressions and sins, when we became believers, when we were forgiven, we weren't just forgiven. Our position was taken and we were put, caused to sit down with Christ in the heavenly realms. There's a common view of salvation. There's a couple common views of salvation that I want to confront. One view is that we give an altar call every Sunday morning here. People come forward and they give their heart to the Lord. I just found out about some people who two weeks ago gave their heart to the Lord. Praise God. And you come forward and, and you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior. But it doesn't, you don't hear any bells. You don't see any fireworks. It seems like a kind of ordinary thing, maybe even a mundane thing. Sometimes people really get blessed, but sometimes they don't feel much different at all. And so we think, sometimes people think that what happened there was simply this, that a person pledged to try to live a better life. I promise you, God, I will not live like I've been living, and I'm going to live for you the rest of my life. And that's a good thing to pledge. But that's not what salvation's about. Other people think that when you come forward and give your heart to the Lord, you, um, 
What you're really doing there is that God, this is a little more biblical, but God sort of has a rubber stamp there. It says forgiveness on it, and he just stamps your sheet and says, okay, you're forgiven. Now go and be grateful. And that's all there is to salvation. And it's because we tend to, hear this, we tend to define things not in epuranos. We tend to define things not in terms of heavenly places, but we tend to define things in terms of what we see, in terms of how things look. And this doesn't look like a very big deal, so apparently it's not a very big deal. And the result of that is this. A lot of believers, because they don't understand what happened to them when they became believers. Sometimes I think preachers stay away from this kind of stuff because it sounds too good to be true and they think, nah, no one's going to believe it anyway. So they just go by it or they kind of water it down. But listen to it now. What ha because they don't understand the package deal that they got, because they don't understand where they are seated and who they are seated with, and that that occurs the moment that they believe, because they don't understand that they are in Epuranos, far above all rule, power, dominion, and authority, they live their life, they live their life, struggling in their own power, using their own resources, relying on their own creativity, under the bondage of all sorts of things that they should never be under the bondage of, under the bondage of things they don't need to be under the bondage of, but they're still living in the anthill and don't realize that they've been transported to Mount Everest. Are you following me here? They don't understand where they are seated and who they're seated with. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. We are like beggars that have been taken off the street. Every one of us was a beggar. We, we, we ate, we fed ourselves by scrounging around under people's tables, just getting the morsels that we could get, crawling around in the garbage, trying to get food and this we could get, just trying to survive day to day. We're used to that. That's how we see ourselves. But the king of the land, the king of the whole world, let's say, invites us to a banquet, goes out on the street. Personally, he, he comes out and invites us to come in on the banquet. And he says, I want you to sue Kathidzo right here. I want you to sit down next to me. And here's your meal. I'm going to give you every kind of food you ever dreamed of. Have all the food on the table. But we are so used to being beggars, we can't believe that that's true. So we'd say, well, thank you very much, sir. And we start looking around, you know, and, and, and we, we start scrambling through people's feet and eating the crumbs of, of, of the other guests. The king says, no, no, I said, Sukathidzo, sit next to me. We go, yeah, yeah, right, 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 gotcha, okay. And then we go around and start begging for more. And so often we live our spiritual lives as beggars, our mindset as beggars. Everything hangs upon this. Knowing, seeing, believing, and being transformed by the truth of what God's Word is saying about where we are seated and where we are blessed. That we are blessed in the heavenly realms. Seeing that. And what it means for you is this. If Christ is seated, epuranos, infinitely above all rule, power, dominion, and authority, you are sitting with Christ. Where does that put you in relationship to those other authorities? Above or below? This is a trick question now. It puts you above. No, it doesn't put you above. It puts you far above. And so what it means for you is this, that if you, if Christ has authority over the power of depression, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, you've got authority over the power of depression. You've got, if Christ has authority over whatever spiritual forces would bring about bitterness or depression in your life, some of you are wrestling with that. That means if you know where you're seated, if you know who you are, if you know where you're sitting, if you know what blessings you've received, you have authority over those kind of spiritual powers. If Christ has authority over all rule, over all power, over all dominion, over the power of worry, over the power of anxiety, over the power of hatred, over the power of sin, over the power of lust, 
You've got to know this, that when you give your heart to the Lord, you are sitting apuranos with Christ in heavenly places. And therefore, what is, what is true of Christ there is by grace given to you, and you have that authority. And maybe it's time for us to stop thinking and acting and speaking and behaving like a bunch of beggars crawling around for crumbs and start realizing who we are in Christ Jesus and where we're sitting and what's been given to us because of where we're seated. Seated, praise God. That is what is true about us in Christ Jesus. And why don't we experience that? Why don't we experience that? Why don't I experience that? Every spiritual blessing, we'll talk about that next week. Every spiritual blessing. Why don't I feel every spiritual blessing? Why do we so often, you want to confess something, here's what we often confess. Some of you are this morning thinking this in your brain. I don't have any authority over depression. I've always been depressed. My mother's been depressed. My grandmother was depressed. That's, it's a genetic thing. I'm just depressed. I don't have any authority over sin. I've always sinned like this. It's just who I am. I've got to learn to live with it. I don't have any authority over uh, bitterness. Uh, you know, man, bitterness has really got a hold of me. I don't have any authority over this habit in my life. It's just the way I am. I, it just controls me. I can't help myself. Why do we talk like that when we're supposed to be sitting at the king's table with all this authority? In a nutshell, it is this, I believe. It's because we allow what we see, what we hear, what we can touch, the physical world, the natural world, to define us to tell us what is true, to tell us how to feel, to tell us how to see things, to tell us how to think. We allow the world, what Paul calls the pattern of this world, to tell us what is true about us instead of God's word. We treat commercials like they were God's word. The TV said it, and I believe it, and that settles it for me. Or we treat our past, you know that song, we treat our past like it was God's word, or the authority of our parents, or whatever. And it gets into us, and we see the world like that. We allow the world, the messages of the world to tell us how we experience things rather than God's word and the Holy Spirit. And the world simply does not equip us to see and experience what is true about us in Epuranos, in terms of what God says. It's like this. It's like this. Right now, this very second, right now, this very second, there are thousands of radio waves going on all around here. We all know that, don't we? And if someone had a radio, uh, they, would, uh, they could turn it on and you receive that. You, you, you could pick up any of these messages. They're already there, but now you've got the equipment to receive it. But if you never had a radio and never knew what a radio was, you'd probably have a hard time believing that there are radio waves all around us. Well, Christians, many of us are just like that. We define things in terms of what we see, and because of that, we don't have the receptivity, the receptors, the spiritual eyes and ears to see our, our real spiritual environment, to see things as they are in the heavenlies. Someone after the, service last, uh, after the first service came up and said, uh, you know, why don't you just tell them to turn their knob to God? You, have you heard that? Turn your knob to yeah. That was Mijmak. Tell her to thank you for that little cliche. That was a good one. Turn your knob to God. We got to learn how to be tuned in to the Jesus radio station. You know? But it's the truth. Here's what's true about you. Here's what the Bible says about you. Here's what God's word says about you. But if you're not tuned into it, if you don't have the spiritual eyes and the capacity to hear it and see it, if you're busy letting commercials in the past and mom and dad and grandparents and friends and past failures tell you who you are, you'll never pick up on the goods of it. And you keep acting like a beggar. Do three things. We'll talk more about this next week or at some point. But three things I'm going to leave you with. 30-second little ditties. Turn your knob to God. Fight the good battle of faith. Number one, fight the good battle of faith. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, says this. Peter, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good battle of faith. It's not the battle of our behavior. It's not the battle of our attitudes that is primary. It's the battle of faith. And the battle of faith is simply this. The resolve 
to believe that what God says about you is true and everything that contradicts it is a lie. Putting God's word first. And that is a warfare, it is a battle because we are bombarded daily with the opposite message. If you're ever going to begin to move into the goods of this thing, you've got to resolve that what God says about you is true. It doesn't matter much what you experience. It doesn't matter much what you go through. It doesn't matter how you feel about things right now. It doesn't matter what your past says. Let God be true and every man, every liar, every experience, every experience a lie. It doesn't conform with that. Number two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12.2 says, Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Renew your mind. The word there, renew, means to turn over and over and over again. Don't just resolve that what the Bible says is true. Begin to put it in your brain. Begin to meditate on it. Begin to chew on it. That's why we talked about memorizing Scripture. Let the Word of God begin to saturate your brain more thoroughly than the commercials do. Man, if we could compete with commercials, we'd have the most Christianized people in the world. What would happen if every, every, every 15 minutes on TV they had Scripture instead of commercials? Think about it. That'd be pretty cool. Anyways, number three. The third point is this. And this is foundational. Crucify yourself daily. Paul says, I crucify myself daily. Philippians chapter 3. If you're going to sit down at the table and begin to eat the food and the blessing, you've got to crucify the beggar. You've got to get rid of the beggar. Now, we like the beggar because at least it's who we are. We're Lord of our beggarness. We're good at our beggarness. We're used to feeding ourselves with the world. We like to have our own ambitions and own aspirations and live our own lives and have to worry about stuff like this. Only to the extent that you, by an act of choice, crucify yourself daily do you open up yourself to begin to enjoy what God has made true about you in the heavenly realms. Resolve to believe the Word of God. Number two, resolve to digest the Word of God. Put it on your mind while you're driving to work, driving home from work, doing your work. And number three, yield to the Word of God. Crucify yourself daily. Surrender yourself over to the Holy Spirit.